Welcome to the D4H live stream series. We're going out live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you're watching us. Or if you're listening back on our podcast on Spotify uh, or Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your content. We have a huge viewership here today already. Um, lots and lots of people in. Uh, I'm delighted to, to welcome on uh, Eric uh, Grutendorst, who is the captain of operations at Canada Task Force One. Eric, welcome. Thanks, Robin. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Eric, you're coming in from Task Force One. Um, you're based in Vancouver, Canada, right? That's correct, Vancouver, British Columbia. And so let's just pull up a map here so people get a sense. I always do this on, on every episode of just trying to get a feeling where people are coming in from. Uh, let's see here. So, uh, British Columbia, Western side of Canada, uh, to the United States, above Canada, and we've got British Columbia on the West Pacific coast and Vancouver bottom corner. So you're your provincial team. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So Canada task force one, although we're based out of, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, our mandate is really to respond anywhere within the province. Um, and then, yeah. you know, we also respond federally under, uh, under the mandate of Public Safety Canada to assist some of the other Canadian teams as well. So, so we are we are for sure a province-wide team. Excellent. And there's a national system, right? Yeah, that's correct. So many countries have some sort of an urban search and rescue um, uh, program, whether it's it's you know under United Nations or or you know under a federal uh, program such as in the us you have fema and in canada we have public safety canada so we do have an urban search and rescue program in in canada that uh, falls under public safety canada um, as well as you know the teams that are located in each province uh, work very closely with the provincial um, uh, emergency management agencies such as here in british columbia we have emergency management bc excellent oh excellent well we, we've got a couple of these provincial uh Guys coming on, there's Canada Task Force 5 uh, just commented in the comments here. Um, so uh, this, this is great. We've got lots of people watching. Um, yeah, so it's a good point to good uh, time to point out that what you can do is you can join the conversation on here. As we're live, and this is live, I'm, I'm in Dublin, Ireland. Eric's over on the west coast of, of Canada, Vancouver. And you can comment live on the chat. So anywhere you see the comment box on the platform you're on it's a comment under the video it appears up here live and eric's going to be good enough to take your questions uh we're on on this so uh keith hello and welcome if you want to say hello do do pop a comment in hey keith <laughs> great stuff I okay just, i gotta leave halifax out of all my jokes today now <laughs> oh look they're all here we've uh, asked for <laughs> six <I> mean, <laughs> Oh, task force montreal is here too okay brilliant um new zealand there's lots of use are going on in new zealand or between all the response teams and new zealand fire and rescue as well okay it's, uh we've got dartmoor in the uk okay there's lots of people tuning in here great stuff fantastic so what what guys you can answer ask questions as we talk here you can ask ask questions in the comments 
let's let's go back to real basics, Eric, for people who don't even know what urban search and rescue is. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, uh, urban search and rescue is is uh, you know a term that um, sets us aside a little bit from you know what a lot of people would consider you know search and rescue, which is that wildland environment. So, with urban search and rescue, our mandate is really to uh, provide assistance to local resources um, to deal with situations such as building collapsed or flooding or um, rescue environments that are more urban based um, that might happen in a city or in, in, a, in a town. So our focus instead of being uh, in the wildland environment uh, is you know, search and rescue based uh, more with building collapse and flooding events and, and, and events based um, around structures and buildings. Um, so and in Canada, uh, that, that H that we put on there, that HUSAR, uh, yes. it just means heavy urban search and rescue. So the, with the United Nations, um, they separate HUSAR into light, medium, and heavy. Um, and so um, it's a way of kind of um, classifying your team into a capability. So we have heavy capabilities, medium capabilities, and light capabilities. Um, in Canada, we just we say HUSAR. Uh, we add the H on the, end, on the beginning a lot of times. Whereas in other countries, um, including the U.S., a lot of times they just say USAR, but it's more or less the same thing. So when people hear SAR, they think of wilderness or, or rescue um, from the environment, maybe. You're, you're taking them out of urban structures, so it's um, building collapses, that type of piece. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. And, and um, the skill sets are, are vastly different. You know, we are uh, partners in, in Wildland SAR, you know, they they're excellent at, at, you know, locating people in the wilderness and, and uh, you know, performing technical rescue, um, uh, or having technical rescue capabilities such as rope rescue and water rescue in that wildland environment. And that's not really our focus. Our focus is, is more, as you can see in that picture to the left there, um, the urban environment. So um, some of the skill sets might be the same, but a lot of them such as search, you know, we may not be searching a wide area. We might be searching a very small area but we're searching through layers of concrete or layers of wood or a flooded area or a landslide and things like that. Um, and then the other thing that's happened in Canada over the past 10 years and really 15 years is our focus has shifted heavily from being a structural collapse response team uh, to being an all hazard response team. So, you know, when our team was, was started in the early nineties, our job was to respond to building collapses and, and that's it. Uh, and over time, you know, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, um, our team has grown and the other Canadian teams have grown and the, and the Canadian program has, has grown to a point where now our mandate is now more all hazards response. So, so we're responding to those flooding events and those um, landslides and those incident management um, events and, and things like that. So uh, we're becoming more of an all hazards response team as opposed to focusing on that structural collapse. Yeah. And and that's uh, my understanding is also providing sort of those incident management teams and around providing uh, um, uh, the support to the local responders as well when you when you fly in somewhere. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's that's a big piece that we provide. Uh, is you know some of these uh, jurisdictions, some of the smaller towns, um, you know they're very very good at emergency response within their town, um, but sometimes these these low frequency, high risk events happen, such as an earthquake or a landslide. Um, and that's something that's out of their, you know, out of their scope or out of, you know, their experience. I um, mean, it helps to have, um, you know, a small incident management team come in and, and help them 
with that situation. And so that is something that, that, you know, the six teams across Canada provide as well. So what are we looking at in this picture? Is this training exercise or, or deployment? No. So this picture to the left here, we, we were deployed uh, six times last year, and this was one of the events that we deployed to. Um, so this is an example of something that, that we would respond to. And in fact, we did last year, and this is a, a multi-story uh, concrete reinforced masonry building collapse. Um, that was only about um, 20 minutes outside of Vancouver, actually. Um, and so we worked on uh, worked on that event for a day there. And and can we see it? I mean, your skills are things like breaking through um, concrete, cutting through concrete, breaking through. Is there anything we can see in this picture of what you guys have done, or is this all? Is this what, how you found it? Yeah, I, I mean, like I said before, because we're going towards that all hazards um, response mandate, um, our team has to have a lot of different skill sets, and and the core skill set, you know, that right from the beginning has been that that rescue uh, ability, and um, our bread and butter really when it comes to rescue is building collapse. So I mean, here we have a, a concrete building that's that's um, partially collapsed. Uh, and in this event, unfortunately, uh, we did do a recovery from it. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of breaking and breaching that had to be done, but there was some search that needed to be done to locate, you know, a person, um, as well as making that area safe. So the big the big thing that we have to do a lot of times is just make that area safe for us to go into um, before we can even start working. Um, and we rely on, on, you know, different parts of our team um, to play their own roles in the big picture. For example, we have four engineers. Uh, that we bring with us, geotechnical engineers, structural engineers mm -hmm. um, that are really experts in their field. Um, and they provide us with, um, you know, structural advice and geotechnical advice on where we can go and where we can't go and how we can shore the building to make it safe. And so we rely on them for their expertise. Um, and then we rely on, in this case, our rescue technicians and our search technicians to go in and make that area safe. So in this case, we had to tie back pieces of the structure. We had to remove parts of the structure. And then we had to de-layer some of that concrete in order to take somebody out. So, um, it, you know, it's a big team uh, and everybody has a role that they play within that team. And we all rely on each other to, to kind of play that role so that we can get in and out safely. How many are usually in a deployment? It really depends on the deployment. Our team uh, is between 130 and 140 members. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends on what we're responding to. For example, this event here was a building collapse and we, you know, had a confirmation that there's only one person missing and it was close to Vancouver and um, we anticipated it would only be one operational period and we only deployed about 12 people. Mm -hmm. What we do when a deployment comes in is we identify what specialties are required um, and then we look at the duration or the expected duration of the operational period and then we can identify how many people we might deploy. So for example, we might deploy 12 um, rescue members or yeah. we might deploy 60 or 70 members on a full team deployment where we have to be self-sufficient for um, a number of days. And and is the other half of the team a, a rotation on that? Is that where the other 70 people are with no, the... I mean, every team's a little bit different. Um, you know, the, the US has a very regimented, uh, very good regimented system uh, with urban search and rescue. And um, we're a little bit different here in Canada uh, and all the teams across Canada are a little bit different um, themselves. The way that we work is we have 130 to 140 members and when we have a deployment we just ask for availability uh, we don't have shifts of people that are expected to be on on call 
Um, but we ask for availability. So we have 130 to 140, and we hope that in, in the case of a deployment, we can get that 60 to 80 people that say that they're that they're available. And then from there, we actually utilize D4H to, to look at who's available, who we're going to bring on. Um, and again, it'll be depending on their specialty and, and what we require for that deployment. Excellent. There's a, a, lots of questions coming in about the building. Why did it collapse or is, it, is that public info? Um, yeah, I mean, that collapse was, was just due, um, uh, I, I can't disclose a whole bunch of information, but it was, it was being demolished and there was an incident, incident during the demolition process that caused the building okay. to collapse unexpectedly. So. Gotcha. And it's obviously, it's reminding people of images we're seeing out of the Ukraine at the moment. Does, does the team deploy internationally to, to get involved in something like collapse structures abroad? Yeah, great question. So that, that, that one is, is a bit more complicated. So we're all watching what's happening in the Ukraine and, and, you know, I've had dozens of team members text me and, 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 um, and ask, you know, are we going to go? Can we go? Can we go help? We all want to help. You know, we're all the same, you know, all of you that are watching this are, I'm sure are, are police officers or firefighters or members of these are teams. And, and you've probably gone through the same thing where you want to go and, and help. Um, so there certainly is the, the interest and, and, um, and we would all love to go and we all want to go and help what's going on there. Um, however, it's difficult for us uh, because we are managed um, and mandated by the federal government and the provincial government. So um, we have to be very careful about what we do and we have to make sure that we abide by all of the, the you know, policies uh, surrounding global affairs in Canada. So um, if you think about us as you know, really a, a federal entity, uh, kind of like the military, um, we can't self-deploy. We can't even self-deploy four or five members to go and help. Um, it has to be, you know, um, a coordinated effort uh, that comes down from the highest levels of government, uh, which would be, in this case, global affairs. But if, you know, if Canada decided that, um, you know, they wanted to send an urban search and rescue team, whether it's to the Ukraine or anywhere else to assist, um, certainly we're capable of international deployment. Uh, we have a base of operations at the Abbotsford Airport, which is about an hour east of Vancouver. Um, and all of our equipment is loaded in trucks, trailers, as well as air deployable um, uh, pallets so that we can taxi a, an aircraft right up to our doors and lo load an aircraft uh, right from our from our cache. Um, and we work very closely with the United Nations and INSTROG. Uh, we, we work under INSTROG methodology. So if we were to deploy to another country, we can certainly work with the US teams, uh, the Central American teams, the South American teams, as well as the teams from around the world that all work under the, the same instruct methodology. So it's a very complicated uh, position to be in because we all want to go, we all want to, uh, you know, help these countries. Um, but again, you know, because we, we, our funding comes from the federal government, the provincial government, and we are uh, managed by um, by really the federal government, uh, we have to make sure that everything we do is, is you know, in coordination with global affairs and, and, and the federal government. Makes sense. Those those aircraft that, that come in, would that be military transport? Uh, again, that, that depends as well. Uh, we do work very closely with the Canadian Armed Forces. We, mm -hmm. uh, trained, with the, we trained with the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, we have a unit that's, that's assigned to us to partner with us uh, that can be attached to us if we deploy and we need more manpower. So. Um, and then as far as the Air Force goes, it really depends what's going on. Uh, certainly, if there's a need to move our equipment uh, across the country or to another country, uh, we would reach out to Public Safety Canada and then the Government Operations Centre to request military support in the form of aircraft. However, sometimes it's easier for us being at a commercial airport 
to simply have a, a commercial carrier move our equipment as well uh, and our personnel. So it really depends on the situation, but um, we do work very closely with the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, as you can see here in the picture to the left, uh, this was another deployment we were on last year. Um, and we had two mudslides that had isolated uh, about 311 people um, about two and a half hours outside of Vancouver. Um, this made big international news. I mean, we, we were getting this on our main main news. I, did, I didn't even know that. Yeah, Vancouver cut off. The kind of headlines were Vancouver cut off from. Um, yeah, it was a very interesting time, a busy time for us. But uh, yeah, it was a very interesting time. We were completely cut off in Vancouver. All the highways were cut off. Um, and in this case, there was over 300 people that, that were trapped for over 24 hours in their cars on a highway uh, quite a ways outside of Vancouver. So we worked with the Canadian Armed Forces, um, some of the most incredible pilots I've ever seen in my entire life that landed these these massive cormorant helicopters right on the landslide mm -hmm. um, between trees right next to cliffs so did they did they fly you from abbotsford is that you went direct or no, we let this is local drops yeah we established a tactical operations center closer to the to the landslide yeah. uh, and we established a landing zone to evacuate the people too um, and then we flew in in the morning and, and evacuated the, the 311 people um, from that location using the Corm three Cormorant helicopters. Um, and so it was one of the bigger operations that we've been involved in. It's certainly the most people um, that we've ever that we've ever moved. Um, but again, we really relied on the Canadian Armed Forces and, and they were just, just fantastic. So, so um, <clears throat> what, what tasks are going on for you? You're setting up a, I mean, do you have an incident commander running that scene at, or is there somebody above above task force one again in something like this or is it managed locally or how, how does that command structure work at something like this? well and in, 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 as we all know in incident command there's always somebody above uh, it never seems to end but um the way that we generally work is that we will uh, respond to a jurisdiction and fall into their incident command system so um in this case it was a small town called agassi and they had a, a initiated emergency operations center um, and then we just come in as a resource or a branch we're usually a, a new SAR branch Mm -hmm. um, and we operate under that that local authority. So uh, we get a tasking from the local authority. Um, and a lot of times it's a police chief or a fire chief. Um, and in this case, it was to assist them with these rescues. And then internally, we have our own team structure. So we would have uh, a task force leader. Uh, and then we have an operations manager, a logistics manager, a finance manager, and a planning manager, um, as is common with your ICS. Um, and then it works its way down to your rescue squads and, and medical squads as well. So in this case, um, we sent 14 members out um, and we had, you know, our medics, our advanced life support paramedics that work with our team, um, as well as uh, Vancouver police officers, um, as well as Vancouver fire. Um, we flew those members out here and we all kind of worked together to, you know, to move these people. And, and having the medics there was fantastic because these people have been stuck for 24 hours and, and you know, they had no medications and, and had varying levels of medical emergencies yeah. and were able to attend to them. Um, while the other members established landing zones and started moving people out. So, so it's a good time to bring this question up. Um, Hiroshi, thank you for, are most of your members pulled from fire and rescue? So Vancouver fire and rescue, or are they pulled from the general population? I think you've got a combination of different city employees, is that? Yeah, and again, uh, there's six teams in Canada and they're all very slightly different. We, we have the same mandate, but the way that the, the, the teams are comprised are a little bit different. So. Uh, with our team in Vancouver here, uh, we're managed by the city of Vancouver and Vancouver Fire Rescue. Um, so everybody that's on our team, almost everybody that's on our team 
um, our full-time employees with the city of Vancouver. So we have about 60 to 70 rescue members that are all Vancouver Fire uh, Special Operations. Um, we have Vancouver Fire Hazardous Materials Technicians. Uh, Vancouver Police provide uh, the majority of our technical search members. Um, they also provide the majority of our canine search. We have seven canines um, that perform live search and, and, and cadaver search. Um, and then our medics are all pulled from the provincial uh, uh, BC Ambulance Service. So our paramedics are mostly advanced life support, critical care, very, very skilled paramedics uh, that serve around the city of Vancouver. Um, and then we also have uh, right now one physician um, that's an emergency room physician uh, at Vancouver General, or actually an intensive care physician at uh, Vancouver General that, that serves on our team as well. So um, the only members that, that aren't City of Vancouver employees um, would be our engineers um, and then a couple of other independent members that have a, a special skill set that we utilize. Um, and some of the other Canadian teams are, are a little bit different. They're pulled from the province or they're pulled from, from different places. And there's advantages and disadvantages both ways. And it just depends on, on you know, how your team is established. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. Um, I guess it, it, it's good good timing also to ask, I, I, you're not a volunteer organization, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the funding and who, who pays those salaries when you're deployed or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's correct. So we're, we're not a volunteer organization like uh, BC SAR. Um, we're funded uh, by multiple levels of government um, to be a provincial and a national um, response entity. Um, our funding first comes from Public Safety Canada, so the federal level. Then our funding comes from EMBC or, or the provincial level. And then we also receive funding from the City of Vancouver and Vancouver Fire Rescue. So uh, they're kind of all the stakeholders that, that um, expect that we would respond on their behalf. Um, so our response would include, first of all, the City of Vancouver. If there's a building collapse within the city, uh, we would support Vancouver Fire in a, in a, in a collapse response. Then we, we provide response to uh, the province of British Columbia and we work alongside Emergency Management BC. And then if one of the other teams in the country uh, is working at uh, a deployment um, and they require more resources because of maybe a, a longer, uh, more drawn out emergency, uh, we can deploy nationally um, under Public Safety Canada and assist in other provinces as well. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, um, let's jump onto this photo here. We're what are we looking at here? Mud, mudside, is that the same incident or, or is this? Yeah, so that's that incident um, that you showed previously with the cormorant in the background. Yeah. This was actually quite close to where that cormorant had landed. And this is the, the mudslide that we were dealing with in Agassiz, the, the major mudslide anyways. Um, and it did take a bunch of vehicles off the road uh, as well as trapping the, the vehicles that were behind it. So mm -hmm. um, the first thing that we... Uh, that we did when we get when we got there is is to you know not just provide medical aid to the people that were in the cars but also we wanted to make sure that there was nobody in the vehicle uh, the local fire department Agassiz did a fantastic job um you know in the dark searching these vehicles and searching this mudslide to the best of their ability and and they did a great job of clearing uh, the vast majority of the vehicles um and and they're a, a smaller volunteer fire department um and the job that they did was really astounding and and uh, you know they did a did a lot of work before we got there. Um, so when we came in, all we had to do was, was search a few vehicles that were kind of left in the daylight hours um, and make sure that, uh, that there was nobody there. Luckily, everybody was out of those vehicles. There was um, you know, some minor injuries 
uh, and they were medevac's um, you know, first uh, priority when we came in, but it was amazing that nobody was killed in, in that slide. Yeah, oh, for sure. This The equipment we can see being worn here, um, to me, um, it's quite, is that, would you call that USAR equipment? I don't see it many other places. Maybe wildland firefighters or somebody have similar kit maybe, or can you talk through what it is? Because the low belt bag, or I don't know what you, what you, what you call that piece of equipment. Yeah. So it's quite unique in USAR. Yeah, it is. It is unique for USAR. Um, and it is very similar to wildland equipment. Um, many of the teams wear Wolfpack uh, equipment and that's what this is as well, supplied by Wolfpack. Okay. Um, and it is purpose built for urban search and rescue operations. So um, it, it's, you know, it, it, similar to, I guess, to, to military webbing a little bit, um, in which case it has pockets all over it for, for different things. Um, and depending on what your specialty is, whether you're a, a medic or you're a rescue squad or you're a heavy steel cutter or something like that, you can carry different equipment in that, um, you know, for, for whatever event that you're responding to. Excellent. Yeah, so it, it sits quite low. What's the benefit is you can carry a ba another bag, is it, on top, or your shoulders are free, or like what, what's, why is it designed like that compared to being a backpack? Well, there, the reason is there's both, actually. So we have um, a, a large bag that all the team members, it's like a big duffel bag that all team members keep packed. So if we have to deploy um, to a location where we're going to be there for more than one or two days, they can bring that bag, and it's already, it's already got more um, clothing, another pair of boots um bedding things like that in it then we have a backpack that actually attaches to that web gear on the back um, also made by wolfpack and team members carry uh, extra t-shirts some granola bars water um another pair of gloves so equipment items that they might need for for a single operational period or one day um, and then what happens you can take that backpack off and put it somewhere and now what is left is that web gear that has the items that you might need or the tools you might need when you're actually out in the field working. Um, so we kind of have a tiered uh, equipment cache that we bring with us, yeah. Makes sense. Um, okay, great. Let's uh, let's keep going through these photos. We're making good good progress here. Uh, let me see what's next. What are we looking at here? Uh, so that's another event that we responded to last year, another deployment. Um, we assisted Kelowna Fire Department in a tower crane collapse um that um, took out part of a building so again you know you have a, a big piece of a building missing and there's a lot of questions surrounding structural integrity so mm -hmm. uh, we work with our engineers to assess the building um and then our rescue squads to go in and and um you know apply or, or install different levels of shoring so we have a bunch of different equipment that we can use to install temporary building shoring um, that makes it safe for us to go in and then we can also use our canine search and our technical search members to go in and actually see if there's anybody there in the first place. So, um, you know, we have resources that um, that a lot of other jurisdictions might not have, and and so we're able to come in and assist them uh, with the you know with the resources, whether it's personnel or equipment. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Flooding. Yeah. So, like I had said before. Um, we initially started as a, as a, a structural collapse team um, and that mandate has changed for all the teams across Canada over the last decade and, and really um, the task forces now are all hazards response teams and um, in this case uh, this was really this was a major event for British Columbia this is the Sumas flooding of last year and you can see here this is just part of it and we had a very very large area a lot of structures impacted um, and it was a farming area so a lot of uh, natural resources a lot of agriculture that was that was affected 
So there's a lot of uh, agencies that came in to deal with this emergency. Um, and this ended up being a federal level emergency. We had the Canadian Armed Forces. We had um, all the provincial uh, resources. The task force was active. We had uh, a, a large number of search and rescue teams that were active that did great work. We had different fire departments, police departments that all kind of came together and provided response to this. So uh, at this event, our specific uh, assignment um, was to provide rapid damage assessments for buildings. So the local SAR teams did an incredible job as well as the fire department with uh, providing rescue, uh, water rescue to the structures. Mm -hmm. And we kind of came in afterwards. This was only a couple days after Agassi. Um, and we were able to come in and work with building inspectors from Vancouver and Abbotsford and send uh, squads out into the into the, the the area to do rapid damage assessments on buildings. And I think we we ended up completing about 3,300 assessments oh, over wow. six or seven days. Um, and it was all done by people in the field. Um, and one of the nice things for the residents, and it, and it kind of made us feel good, was that, you know, the fact that we were able to complete these rapid, rapid damage assessments quickly meant that people got to go back to their homes faster. So, um, you know, that we were able to identify areas that weren't worth, weren't affected by the flood, um, and the the city was able to open up those areas to, to people coming home. Excellent. So it really is a very varied. I mean, it can you know from your discussion, it incredibly varied to the role that you're doing. Yeah, and I mean that's what you know what we love about it is that we never know what we might be getting sent to. Um, but it's also one of the biggest challenges is that now we don't have one emergency that we can um, focus on, such as building collapse. Uh, we have to be prepared for anything that the province or the federal government you know, requires assistance with. Um, and this picture here is, again, the, the flooding in Sumas and um, utilizing uh, paper maps and pickup trucks to drive around and identify areas. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure we'll talk about that incident management software at some point. But this is where we this is when we identified that we really needed um you know to get with the times it's 2022 but also uh, find some sort of gis solution to uh, emergency response as opposed to uh, drawing on maps so very good we're nearly through your photos here this um this is working with uh, external helicopter private operator yeah that's right so we we have a bunch of different uh, resources that we can call on and this is just one of our partners that we work very closely with um, this is a you know a helicopter company that uh, that we work closely with to provide access. And so, a lot of times, what we would strive to do is, in the event of a deployment, we want to move um, what we would call a reconnaissance team to that location as quickly as we can to identify what resources we need. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that would be generally a, a task force leader, um, maybe a hazardous material specialist, uh, likely a paramedic. Our engineers, you know, are, are really pivotal in our responses because they provide a lot of information. Um, and then sometimes, you know, our canines as well would fly in these helicopters and our canines are all trained not only to fly in helicopters, but also to, you know, to be lowered off of buildings, to repel with their, with their handlers, to access um, collapsed structures. So they're really, you know, very skilled dogs and the handlers spend an, uh, an unbelievable amount of time with them, um, getting them ready for all these different situations. Brilliant. I can see you're talking about being the police, police side of the um, your group. Yeah, so we, we actually uh, 
we wear two patches. Uh, we wear uh, the, the you know Canada Task Force one patch on one shoulder, and then whatever agency that we belong to on the other. And it's a bit of the, you know pride in you know in those agencies representing those agencies when you're abroad. So in this case, um, you know this is Bob Sander, one of our you know he's our head canine handler. Um, and our, our team lead, and, and he's with Vancouver Police. And so, you know, when he gets deployed with his canine, he's able to represent Vancouver Police wherever, you know, they might be deployed to. Excellent. So there's lots of interest coming by in comments here, right? People sort of wanting to join, but it can, and can civilians help? But it leads us down the question of like, what is involved in, in joining? How long does it take somebody to go from, you know, to interview for you, to be part of maybe their regular police officer or firefighter? How do they, what's the path? to join task force one yeah great question so it really depends on on under what um job you're kind of joining so like i said we have 130 to 140 members on our team and, and within that 140 130 140 we have different groups or different jobs so we have you know rescue members we have technical search we have canine we have medical we have logistics we have water purification we have communications um and the list goes on so it really depends you know whether you were to join you know to be a rescue member or a medic member one of the things that we're very very lucky about is that the people that we take on and the advantage to the way that we organize our team is that we take on people that have a, a huge level of training already for example our bc ehs members or bc ambulance members they're very experienced very skilled uh, very well trained paramedics already even before they come to our team and so what we do is then we try to provide them with, you know, specialized training in collapse rescue. Um, but they come to us with a very, very high level of training. Um, on the rescue side, we utilize Vancouver Fire um, Special Operations members. Um, and the reason for that is they, uh, you know, they have a lot of experience with Vancouver Fire responding to incidents already. And they have technician level training and trench rescue, confined space rescue, rope rescue, water rescue structural collapse rescue. So these are members that, that you know, their full-time job is providing that level of response and, and um, keeping up their training on a daily basis. So, you know, it, it really depends on, on, you know, what you're joining the team. Usually for our rescue members, it's three years um, before, you know, from the time they join to the time that they're fully trained, takes about three years. Um, and then our technical search, um, it's usually one to two years um and then some of those other you know, those other teams it, you know it depends on when we're running training but it, it's usually a number of years before you're you're fully trained how many hours would you train per month or team or is there sub teams or sort of what how does the training structure work so the training the way that the training works for us again it's um we heavily rely on those our partner agencies to to kind of uh keep up the skill sets um, the core skill sets, for example, you know, our rescue members from Vancouver Fire are training on a daily basis at their full time job. And so they're able to keep up with those skill sets. Um, but outside of that, uh, our special teams train at least once a month. So our, our canine search, our technical search, uh, our paramedics um, all train uh, one day a month. And then we have a varying number of deployments a year where we do um, a full team uh, training exercise and that could be a, a one single day where we bring in as many po uh, people as we possibly can or um, you know for example in 2019 we sent about 90 members to uh, Indiana um, and we worked with FEMA to do a, a, about a five-day training exercise with with FEMA and other American teams so um, at a bare minimum they're training uh, our specialty teams are training once a month one day a month mm -hmm. 
yeah. but the reality is, you know, their their full time job is to provide that advanced life support medical or the the special operations rescue um, and things like that. So that makes complete sense. There must be massive amounts of equipment as well. You've sort of alluded to, um, you've alluded to the the trucks and the containers and everything can ship out. What's the scale? Can you give people? I mean, I've I've been to your warehouse and seen the racking and all the equipment and trucks and, and stuff like that. But I, can you maybe you could describe that for people? There's a lot of kit goes with you. Or yeah, and, with you. and now especially we we need to have. Um, the equipment to deal with any sort of hazard that we might re be responding to. So, uh, and, not, and not only do we have to have the equipment to respond to that emergency, but we have to have um, a training cache of equipment that you know, that we utilize to train members on and, and to do exercises. And then we also have a um, a cache of equipment for um, for deployment. Um, we don't want to take a saw that's been used, you know, thirty times um, on our concrete pile to an actual emergency. So we have a, a complete cache of equipment for training, a complete cache of equipment for deployments. And then our cache of equipment for deployments is split up um, into two different deployment methods. Um, much of our equipment is on trailers. Um, we have a communications trailer, a logistics trailer, which is kind of like a little mobile uh, workshop. We have a 38 foot technical rescue trailer, and then we have a 53 foot and 48 foot semi trailer um, that are all preloaded. And those are the, the vehicles that we would take to a provincial response. Um, and on the, the 53 foot trailer, uh, we have tents, um, medical equipment, heaters, air conditioners, uh, showers, and we're able to actually take that trailer and set up an entire base of operations um, and operate completely independent from any of the local, um, local resources. So we're not kind of, you know, um, relying on local resources uh, when we're there. We don't want to be a burden on on the local city or the local town that's already experiencing, you know, uh, some sort of emergency event. Um, all in all, we manage about $7 million worth of equipment between two 8,000 square foot warehouses, uh, one down in, in downtown Vancouver, um, where we manage a lot of our training and, and uh, logistics. And then we have an operations center in, at the Abbotsford Airport. Um, that is all of our ops equipment that's ready to go out in case of a in case of a disaster. And, and by we, I mean you know my counterpart Eric, who is our logistics captain. That uh, you know it's his full time job, and probably could use three of him just um, you know managing equipment and commercial vehicle inspections and um, you know trucks and trailers and boats. We have four boats that have to be managed and and disposable. Um, supply so it's a it's a huge huge undertaking to manage the resources for a team like this for sure yeah wow and for for the people themselves what's the most challenging aspect of being on the task force is it unexpected deployments i mean you're away from home or family for without notice for for a number of days or what what are the difficult parts i think it would be I mean, you'd have to split that into, you know, uh, personal challenges and some of the more professional challenges. I mean, mm. for us, I think the biggest professional challenge um, would be, you know, communications is always a challenge. And, and, and mm. you know, depending on where we go, we might not have cell service, we might not have internet, or we might not have some of the other things. So one, you know, we rely on our communications team to, to kind of bridge that gap. And we have to have a very, very robust communications team to provide satellite communications or, VHF radio communications or um, internet communications. So, I think that's professionally one of our biggest challenges. Is always is always the, the communication side of it. Um, and then the, the the personal challenges. Uh, you know, in my opinion, um, first of all, it's it's when something happens. 
um, waiting, you know, for a word on whether or not you're going to be deployed. Um, you know, like many of you that are probably watching this right now, you're in some sort of emergency response service, and, and it's very, very difficult to hear of something going on and, and not being able to actually, you know, go and do something. So I think that's part of the first part would be, you know, you know, waiting for that that call to come in because like i said we are you know um managed by by various levels of government we're not able to just you know say yeah let's go let's go do that let's go help so that's probably the first thing and then the second thing is you know when we are actually deployed it, it it's to a major event and and it's not easy for anybody to deal with and it doesn't matter how long you've been with you know a fire department or a police department or a search and rescue team or uh emergency medical service it is is very difficult to deal with disaster and and with um, the loss of life or, or with injuries. So, you know, as much as we're there to help, it is also, you know, difficult uh, for members to, to go out and deal with these these major situations. Yeah, I can I can imagine that, that yeah, it, it's, um, I guess it's it's part of their profession as well, they're dealing with it, but the, the scale of it is bigger. That's right, yeah, exactly. So I always ask people on these calls, um, sort of towards the end, about D4H because that's obviously how we know each other um, and the, the two parts I'm always interested in are sort of what your favorite part is or the most useful to you as a task force um, of the D4H software. I think task force one must be one of our very, very long term customers now at this stage. I, I'm going to guess eight plus years, uh, maybe longer. I'm not sure. It's a long time. Yeah, yeah for sure. We've been utilizing it for quite a long time. and, and yeah. as you know, We've been using the, the personnel and training uh, platform for, for that that entire time, um, and I would say you know uh, Eric he manages our entire seven million dollar inventory using D4H, um, mm -hmm. and I can't speak to that side because I'm not a logistics person and I really don't even know how that side of it works. But the the, the personnel and training side, uh, I think for me, you know, trying to coordinate you know the the operations. Um, I, I really like the, the ability to take all of our members and put them into groups um, and then, you know, use those groups to track certifications or, um, you know, all of our training is tracked through that platform. So there's a huge amount of training that our members have to have every year. It's a requirement. Every, everything from a simple, um, you know, air, APR mask fitting to water rescue training to uh, different levels of technical rescue training and all of that we track through the, the D4H um, personnel and, and training management platform. Um, and so by utilizing those groups, I can, you know, add the certifications that are required or contact that group if I want to. So that's probably my my favorite part of, of that platform. Um, we, we, we did a lot of table topping recently, uh, maybe it was January-ish or maybe December, January of in our incident management platform as well. We were talking about that and I remember, I think it was that flood, actually the photos you're looking at of that, those landslides was one of the tabletops. I, I ran through with you of how we do it in the incident management platform. That, yeah, I think that's pretty new to you, but it's one of the things that you're, you're implementing. Yeah, that, so the incident management platform is new. And and like I said, when we were deployed to SUMAS and we were, we had uh, um, at one point, I think seven teams um, in the field doing these rapid damage assessments. Um, we were able to utilize a very, very basic uh, GIS program, and that's when we said we really need to, to you know, catch up with the times and utilize a GIS solution for what we're doing out in the field. Um, you know, and part of that was was working with Insrog and, and seeing them go to that that GIS-based um, dashboard, and we wanted to find something you know that would work for us. 
and so we looked at a number of solutions um, and what what we were looking for is not just a gis solution but we also wanted to be able to do all of our documentation digitally so we're talking about ics forms and different team forms that we use instead of filling them out by hand we wanted to have um, a solution that we can fill them out uh, on a computer digitally and move them around and share them uh, by by email and other means so we were really looking for a, a solution that a provided gis uh, gis solution so that we could uh, you know, view um, a map of where members were working. Um, we wanted to be able to bring information in from the field, for example, a rapid damage assessment or an INSTROG uh, worksite triage form or a victim extrication form. Um, and then we also wanted to be able to fill out our ICS forms uh, online without having to do them by hand. And we looked at a bunch of different solutions, but you know, uh, D4H for us, D4H solved all of those problems. Um, and if you ask me what my favorite part of the incident management platform is it's is the fact that you know um, we can create our own forms in minutes. For example, as an all hazards response team, if we respond to an incident that we haven't responded to in the past, um, or you know we haven't created a template for it, it takes me about three or four minutes to quickly create a form, and now we can have our our teams that are on the field uh, send information in. Um, based on that form that you've created, and it doesn't require you to, to you know, go to a, a code writer. And I'm certainly not a, a computer tech person, but it's, it's intuitive enough that I can create those forms to gather information from the field, and then that information is plotted on on a map um, using uh, GIS. So um, we're really excited about it, um, and I know we've been sharing some of our successes with the other teams in Canada. Um, but uh, this year, you know, we're almost finished building it out. And this year, we're, we're, we hope to do a complete move to that incident management. Excellent. Problem. Well, it's only fair if you talk about your favorite bits to say what would make it even better. I, I, I like asking this to people live. Uh, we can't take it back. So whatever I say, we'll do. Right? <laughs> what, what, what are the, um, what, what, what would make it better? Any of the components, whether it's personnel and training or, or incident management or any part you know. Uh, the personnel and training, I can't speak to um, as much because, again, the logistics side of it, that's, that's Eric's world. And I'm sure he's got a list for you of things that you could, that you could uh, change. But, you know, as far as the incident management, because that's what I've been look, uh, working with the most, um, just off the top of my head is, is uh, the ability to track people out in the field. Mm -hmm. um, we can drop pins and we can um, um, provide, you know, uh, geographical information. Um, and I think the next step would be able to track team members in real time. Um, yep. And the other thing is, is uh, and maybe there is a way to do this. I haven't had a chance to, to talk about it yet, but um, to receive pictures from the field. So we're filling out forms. For example, I have a, you know, I have a team in the field doing a worksite triage or a rapid damage assessment. The ability to add pictures to that and submit pictures in that, I think yep. would all okay perfect yeah so so the, the the live gps positioning is is absolutely coming um the first version is going to be through the mobile app itself so if the user has the mobile app on and their um mobile device has gps or location services and they have cell signal or wi-fi um it'll it'll plot their position you'll see them live on the map where they've came um we do plan to add other location sources whether it's um there's been discussions about garmin inreach devices and other pieces that we use as so satellite trackers um, so you don't need cell phone signal in the field but it's it's absolutely on our radar uh, live positioning um the other piece uh adding taking photographs and media from the, the field and adding it into fields on forms or into the the real-time log 
you'll get a phone call tomorrow with some training on that yeah perfect see it's already possible <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you can do that already um so you can you can take media straight from the camera on the mobile app um, excellent excellent so, absolutely well that's great if people are interested uh amy who puts together these live streams has done a great case study previously on how canada task force one uses d4h i'm sure it's probably in the links below um this video and if it's not it'll be there uh, by tomorrow but um, if not, just search D4H CAN TF1 and you will find that case study. It talks about what they use and the different products and pieces. And if any anyone else wants to have a look at, at um, get a demo, um, we'll, we'll absolutely do that. Eric, this has been been great. We've been getting a huge number of questions in. There's been, um, there's been great interest in it. I'm just looking through the questions and I'm going to keep those questions about the product coming in, but I want to keep this about you guys. Um, um let's see here what else there is um really it's just if there's any other questions for you um questions say say again I, I did see a question there from adam uh, regarding accountability in, in the incident management platform yes yeah so so um you you absolutely can do accountability who's in and out check in check out and the different pieces um, and Adam, I'm not sure which organization you're from, but if, again, if you want to get a demo of that, we can, we can arrange that. Just drop an email into, to our sales at d4h.com. And that's no problem at all to, to, um, to arrange that for you. Or if you're a customer support at d4h and we'll show you, um, next week, uh, next, this day, next week, 28th of April. Um, our next live stream is with the New Jersey EMS task, EMS task force. So it's a, a US based EMS task force. So sort of, um, mass healthcare response. Um, and that, that's going to be very interesting. You see the different side of, um, another task force of a different kind. Um, so looking forward to that. And Eric, again, um, a huge thank you to you. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add or, or, or anything at all, but, um, no, just, no, just just thanks to to you guys for providing uh, you know a couple of solutions that make our job a lot easier and and um, uh, and I think that's that's it. Okay, well, listen, thank you, thank you very much, um, and there's lots of thanks coming in for you on here as well. So, listen, we'll talk talk again soon, and someone will be in touch tomorrow about the uh, the photos. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, thanks, talk soon, Eric. Thanks very much. Bye bye.